Hi everyone, I'm Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Ralph Leidick, Professor of Neuroscience and Co-Director of Anesthesiology Research at the University of Tennessee Graduate School of Medicine, and Dr. Tally Largent-Milnes, Associate Professor of Pharmacology at the University of Arizona. Recently, Dr. Leidick and Dr. Largent-Milnes joined us for a webinar to discuss physiological mechanisms behind the opioid epidemic and present their research on the effects of opioids on sleep and respiratory depression in preclinical mouse models. Let's jump right in. Regarding the result you showed on morphine altering eight neurotransmitters, why did you choose those particular neurotransmitters? Those neurotransmitters were chosen because they represent the majority of small molecule neurotransmitters that have been shown to modulate uh, states of sleep and wakefulness and also to alter breathing. Uh, There are uh, admittedly many more that we can pursue, and we hope to have the opportunity to do that going forward. Perfect. Thanks, Ralph. And Tali, there's actually a a similar question for you. Uh, You showed data from CB1 and CB2. And so why did you choose to target CB2? So that's a great question. So we have chosen so far to stick with targeting the CB2 receptor, given that it has a low psychotropic liability. You know, now with some of these data that we have just presented, the idea of targeting peripherally, the peripheral CB1 receptors only has become an intriguing possibility. But CB1 receptors typically carry a large psychotropic liability. And so in attempts to address the the addiction potential, we plan to stick with CB2. Okay, excellent. And uh, Tali, another question for you. Would you expect differences based on sex or age given your results? That's a really good question, Liam. And the short answer is I would expect it, but we haven't looked at it at all. And so we know that for many drugs of abuse, the susceptibility that to adverse events is much higher in females. And so we would expect that in this model as well. As far as the age, I don't know how much data is really out there on that. And so it'd be really interesting to follow up looking at the age, the effect of age on respiratory depression and cannabinoid interactions with opioids. Perfect. Yeah, that's really interesting. Ralph, you mentioned a bit about greater susceptibility in female and obese patients. Do you have anything to add on to what Tally said? There are indeed well-documented sex-specific differences in in nociception as well as uh, unwanted side effects from many of these uh, anti-nociceptive compounds. And the study that we cite in that that 2018 paper, uh, I should again reemphasize it's an association study, very interesting closed claims case analysis, and we don't really have any underlying understanding of the mechanisms causing these associations, but that's an important question for the future. Okay, perfect. Yeah, here's another question. So the news emphasizes that most opioid overdose deaths are caused by fentanyl. Ralph, you showed some data on fentanyl and respiratory depression and sleep, but have you also measured the effects of fentanyl on brain neurotransmitters? We have, and I didn't show those because those data are under review, and the particular journal where they're being considered very much appreciates uh, not having any pre-publication of those data appear before there's been peer review. So that's an important question and one that we hope, again, to be able to pursue going forward. 
Okay, perfect. And speaking of fentanyl, question for you, Tally. Given the doses you used for morphine, what would you expect with higher doses or if you used more potent opioids like fentanyl? It's a great question. And again, one that we are currently pursuing. So we know that in particular chronic users of opioids require more opioid to achieve their effects and that in some cases, a long-time user can can use a dose that would acutely kill somebody without prior exposure. And so we would expect that we would probably have to increase the cannabinoid ligand dose to overcome the opioid effect if we're looking at it as a reversal agent or for a more potent opioid such as fentanyl. But from you know a different standpoint of maybe using a co-administration as maintenance therapy, we can maybe prevent the induction of respiratory depression from the beginning. Okay, perfect. Okay, question here about the EEG telemetry you talked about, Ralph. For your studies using telemetry to measure EEG and states of sleep and wakefulness, how long can mice be studied in this way? We have had mice that have been showing all signs of health And these mice, I should add, are evaluated on a daily basis by a board-certified veterinarian. And these animals can be implanted and behave normally and be healthy for months at a time. Three to six months is not an unusual finding for our current surgical implants. Perfect. Thanks, Ralph. Next question. Okay, one for you, Tally. Given that opioids decrease metabolic rate, how do you consider this with respect to your findings with respiratory depression and pain? That is a good question, and I don't necessarily have an answer. I'm going to somewhat refer to Ralph's data that he presented. And so there's definitely a clear change in sleep patterns as well as metabolic rate. And we know that opioids do affect different organ systems, including cardiovascular and the neural control of cardiovascular as well as breathing. And so we would expect that there are some compounds in the pain assays From the historical standpoint, we don't see any major changes in the behaving animals between the control and the opioid exposed. And so maybe in a more chronic setting, we would expect something a little bit different. But for these acute studies, we don't see any major impact on the metabolic rate. Perfect. Thanks, Tally. Ralph, do you have anything to add to that? I think Tally gave a very complete uh, answer. We do know that things like temperature and um, amount of hydrogen ions consumed in the diet have profound effects on breathing. And these effects, rather than a confound, I, I think of them more as a sort of metadata, unless that's your area of interest and it's your main data. But certainly, uh, Tally's right. We know they are there, and person requires a lot of expensive equipment if you're going to pursue these sort of metabolic effects. We don't have that equipment, but it's a very important question. Perfect. Thanks, Ralph. Here, another question for Tally. So you presented data for respiratory frequency for the effects of cannabinoids and opioids together. Did you measure tidal volume or ventilation and did they change? Yeah, so another good question. We So the data I presented for consistency between slides, I stuck with the frequency of respiration or respiratory rate. We have data that also show the same um, or similar responses for tidal volume and minute ventilation. Perfect. Thanks, Telly. Yeah, another question here. So are there any interests or benefits to study apnea related events tied to opioid-induced respiratory depression? And is this being considered in your study design? Maybe, Ralph, you could go first. 
Well, one of the limitations I must acknowledge of the rodent model, animals that have a horizontal spine, horizontally located spine relative to earth or where they're walking, tend not to obstruct so much as humans with vertically or oriented spine. And I think so the airway is very well supported. We look at respiratory pauses and there are many really elegant respiratory studies by others which do study apneic episodes that are drug-induced in, in mice. We have not pursued those right now. We just want to get our basic chemistry data associated with these changes in breathing. Perfect. Thanks, Ralph. Uh, Tally, do you have anything to add to that? Do you have experience with apnea? I don't, actually. It's an interesting question that is beyond the scope of what we're working on right now, but maybe to consider in the future. Perfect. Okay. Tal, here's another question for you about the effects associated with the activation of peripheral CB1 receptors. Where do you think they are located to cause the observed effects? And where would be the main site of action, for instance, carotid bodies? Okay, so the question is, just I can wrap my head around it. You know, what is underlying the peripheral CB1 agonist effects for respiratory depression and where those receptors are? particular with the carotid bodies. And I think if I had to foray into that field, the likely place is that these are these receptors are known to be on primary afferents, both cranial afferents as well as somatic afferents. In particular, I would say the vagal afferents, which will terminate in the nucleus of the solitary tract. And so the peripheral activity of CBT or CB1 on the vagal afferents would be my first Yes, if I had to look, vagal afferents are also controlling carotid bodies as well. So that's where I would start. But we haven't really followed up on that yet. Perfect. Thanks, Dolly. Ralph, here's a question just regarding the translatability of mouse models. Do you know, can you comment on the on the translatability? For example, does buprenorphine cause wakefulness in humans? Uh, buprenorphine, I'm not aware of any studies that have looked specifically in terms of polygraphically determined states of consciousness in humans. I, I would bet dollars to donuts that indeed buprenorphine given to humans uh, disrupts sleep. Actually, there are published data now that I think about it showing that it does disrupt sleep. Okay, perfect. Thanks, Ralph. Tally, another question for you. Experiments appeared to use concurrent treatment with cannabinoids. But have you also attempted a reversal of ongoing opiate respiratory depression? No, we have not attempted a reversal paradigm. Those experiments are underway right now. Perfect. So I don't have any results for you. Tell you another question about uh, for you. What purpose was the 0% carbon dioxide and 5% carbon dioxide in your study design? So when we say 0%, it's zero additional percent. So that's room air. So there is some carbon carbon dioxide in there. And that is to study respiratory depression under room air conditions. During respiratory depression, you, especially opioid-induced respiratory depression, you can get more robust results when you use a CO2 challenge. So in this case, um, we did a stable concentrate or percentage of 5% CO2 challenge on top of room air to exacerbate what was happening. Also, the reason that we chose that is that often, um, and I'll, I might end up deferring to Ralph on this one, but for anesthesia, during anesthesia, patients will often have changes in how they detect their CO2, and so CO2 levels can increase as well. And so that was another reason that we chose 5% CO2 as a challenge. Perfect. And Ralph, yeah, do you have anything to add to that? 
Well, I think Tally said it correctly. One of the things that all of these studies like to do is say, here's what a drug condition does under control conditions, and here is how it either accentuates or impairs a normal physiological response to a respiratory challenge. And so CO2 is, is such a challenge. Perfect. Thanks. And can you comment on the recent evidence from the Allen Institute indicating that individual cell phenotypes in the cortex of the mouse and humans have very significant differences between homologous human and mouse cell types, including marked alterations in proportions, laminar distributions, gene expression, and morphology. And in particular, how might that impact the understanding of the opiate response in rodent models versus humans? Ralph, come to this one first. Yeah, I appreciate the person who submitted this, these data uh, making this point, and um, absolutely there are similarities and differences, and one of the things we like to remind ourselves as well as our students is the quotation by the great statistician Box, who said that uh, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I think <laughs> the, rodent, the rodent model is, is definitely useful. We can do things in rodents that we cannot ethically do in humans. But these cautionary notes regarding the data from the Allen Institute are well taken, and it's going to be very exciting to see how this plays out with regard to functional as well as anatomical measures. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.